0: Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, we validate before we challenge. Ann and I are joined by Jeffrey Eng, a licensed clinical psychologist and the Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about how we can be supportive and kind to each other and ourselves during these turbulent and uncertain times.
1: Jeff, thanks so much for being on this podcast with us. And just to introduce you to our listeners, you're the Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at Fordham. And can you tell us a little bit about March 10th was the day that Fordham moved to online instruction. So maybe Uh if you want to tell us a little bit about how you would have described your job on March 9th and then how you would describe your job now.
2: Well, it's interesting that you asked that, Anne, because even on March 9th and before we formally removed all classes to, to remote instruction, we had already been planning to shift to the provision of remote services because we had been hearing from many different sources, including other colleges and universities and colleagues on other campuses, that this was likely going to happen. And so even on March 9th, my job was not, I guess, as typical as it had been maybe the month before or certainly the year before. I think what you're asking is what my job was like before all this unfolded. And I think my general sort of response to that is that we were mostly prepared to provide services face-to-face and in person in our physical offices. And we've been doing that for, for decades. I mean, the entire time that I've been at Counseling and Psychological Services in Fordham, that's what we've done. You know, we've done a few phone sessions, you know, and maybe over the summer, couple of, uh, you know, video conferencing sessions over the summer. But the idea of migrating our entire operation to be remote was something that was quite an undertaking, as I'm sure it has been for for everyone. You know, we have over 1,600 students on our caseloads. And so figuring out which of those students would need continued care, which ones would not, which ones would need intermittent care, and then how to provide it if they do need it was quite a, a task. I don't know how we accomplished it, but we somehow did, remarkably. You know, I think a lot of our staff were also quite frightened about technology. They're just very familiar with and very comfortable with face-to-face, in-person contact with our students. There, there's a lot of value to that. A lot of our staff, they entered this field because they value this face-to-face interaction. And so they, I think they were a little hesitant.
1: What have you been doing to support your staff? and what have they been telling you about the biggest changes they're experiencing in working with uh,
2: student clients
1: in a, are you using Zoom for your meetings or how are you doing the meetings?
2: I mean, we're using a variety of platforms. We're using Zoom, WebEx and and Doxy.me, which is um, for healthcare providers. Oh. Um, We actually couldn't use the, the version of Zoom that the university purchased for us because they didn't purchase the HIPAA compliant version um, so we have to purchase our own separate license to use Zoom. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, I have almost 50, um, staff and, uh, graduate student trainees. And, uh, the bottom line is that there's almost 50 different unique situations. Um, and, and I, have been trying to really honor and support the complexities and the multidimensionalities of all their lives. Um, and so it requires a lot of a lot of flexibility and I think accommodation on on my part, on the part of our um, our, our leaders within the institution. Um, I mean, you all I'm sure have heard the same things from um, instructors, right? I mean, for some instructors and some of my staff, you know, making the shift technologically, finding the space to do the the work, it's it's been you know easy peasy. And for others with you know poor Wi-Fi or um, you know young children at home. Um, or family members who are, who are ill, it's just more complicated. And I think uh, I've just been trying to be reasonable and flexible with my, my expectations.
3: I imagine even from the student side, many of them may not have a private space at home where they, where they can receive support from their counselor, right? That would be maybe an issue on their end as well. Yeah, having a therapeutic conversation in my house, when we're all quarantined together, how is that
2: happening? I mean, I think if there's one consistent challenge that all of my staff and our graduate student trainees have been reporting on the part of students, it's it's the struggle with being back home. They're trying to negotiate with their families, their parents, uh, about what the right boundaries are and what the right sort of you know physical sort of spacing needs are, so that they can do all the things that they're accustomed to doing when they're on their own. And and it's been quite hard for a lot of our students. Um, you know, some of them actually cannot do continue with counseling sessions right now. So we're We've been trying to be creative. We've been having email back and forth with students. It's a little more uh, more easy for them to have some of those conversations rather than even a phone conversation or or video conversation.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what we're losing by not being able to be with other people or only being able to be with the very narrow band of people with whom we're
2: self-quarantined? I mean, the most obvious thing that we're losing is physical contact. I, I know there's differences in terms of from culture to culture and society to society in terms of comfort with physical contact. But I, I do believe that, that the human beings are, are physically social beings. You all remember the rhesus monkeys from Psych 101, right? Um, touch and physical affection are, are all things that are, are essential, right, for our health and our emotional well-being. And that cannot be replicated through, through Zoom or, or WebEx or Skype, unfortunately. So that's what comes to my mind right off the bat. And then I think there is this interpersonal, you know, sort of resonance. You know, I'm not even sure what other word I can use, right, that, that we can only sort of pick up on and experience when we're with someone in person. Picking up on, you know, nonverbal bodily cues, recognizing when we need to pause and be reflective of and mirroring of someone's experience. Some of those things we we can't do as well when we're using the phone or or Skype.
3: Jeff, I remember I came to see you. I'd never been to your office before. What I noticed was you had this soft yellow light bulb Mm. and this really nice comfy chair that I sat in and this lovely (laughs) rug. And it was like such a warm and welcoming space. When you're talking, I'm conjuring that visit. And, And Anna and I have been talking about the physical components of teaching. And we also discussed the physical spaces in which teaching takes place. But I think in your context, maybe that's equally important that you can construct
2: this safe environment that you can't really do through a Zoom. It's just much more difficult. I mean, you know, we're obviously trying to do our best to replicate You know, some of that sense of physical and environmental safety, but it's it's hard because there are things we can't control. The word that I want to throw out there is intimacy. I think there is a sense of intimacy that is lost when we engage in, you know, purely um, screen-to-screen interactions. And and I'm sure there's a whole sort of neuroscience behind that that I'm not familiar with, (laughs) but I do know that there's a, a level of sort of neural activation that occurs when we're interacting with someone physically and in person, face-to-face, that is not replicated when we're interacting with them through the screen. It's like watching a sporting event on TV versus being there in person.
0: Right? Yeah, the, yeah. the
2: experience, the felt experience is so different. The emotional experience is so different. There's a level of connection you know, with everybody there that you don't feel when you're watching it on the screen.
1: I went to a hockey game one time. Uh I don't care a thing about hockey. Watching hockey live is so (laughs) exciting. Exactly, right. It's really cold and everyone's (laughs) super riveted. And I could never watch a hockey game on TV. But if you invite me to a live hockey game, maybe not a Rangers game, but a live hockey game,
2: so into it. Exactly, exactly right. When the NBA was contemplating playing games without fans in in the stadiums, I mean, nobody wanted that, even though it was a somewhat creative solution. It it
1: did seem for a minute like that might work, but it's interesting how unappealing that was.
2: One of the things that I've been hearing, or we've been hearing a lot from students, and maybe you've been hearing the same thing in regards to their sort of academic experience right now, is that it feels like it's optional. That's the word that we've been hearing a lot. They're reporting that it feels like it's optional because of how it has intersected with their, their home and family lives, which historically has been more boundary and separate from academic life as a college student. Even though they, they recognize intellectually that it's not optional, emotionally, they feel like it's optional.
1: That's really interesting. This, I've been doing a check-in with my oh. students at the beginning of every class. So I'm meeting my class synchronously at the same time <laughs> that we had regularly met. And I start every class just by asking them to say what's been hard and what's getting them through. And we're in what week three of this um, online instruction. And someone very early on said, the work is really piling on. And it seems like it's multiplying. It's very hard to do it. A lot of them, I think, I mean, in a kind of, you know, in my lay person's sense, are experiencing some low-grade depression. So there's a lot of self-reporting of sleeping 10 hours. We had a lot of students who were exhausted. I mean, this happened right at midterm, so it's natural that they had a sleep deficit. Three weeks later, to still be sleeping 10 hours is unusual. They're sleeping a ton because they can. Word and
2: sad. Yeah, um I mean I think you know we we've been hearing the same thing as well from our students that there is this understandable sense of sadness, you know, which comes with loss and grief. There's a sense of feeling melancholic and dysthymic and just down. They're still processing what abruptly happened to them 2-3 weeks ago and all the losses and disruptions that came with that. And so it will be understandable that they, it will be harder for them to sort of stay motivated, right, to, to do some of the work that's required of them. Intellectually, they know they still have to do the work, but emotionally figuring out how to, how to process that so they can actually do the work has been hard. And that's why I kind of started off, you know, this, this conversation with saying that I think one of the things that students most need right now is to give themselves sort of time and space, right, to, to feel those feelings and trusting that over time it'll, it'll pass. I think the challenge is that the academic pace has not really sort of slowed down while they're trying to navigate this. In fact, for some of them, it seems like it's picked up in in many ways, because with some of the asynchronous classrooms and learning going on, there are some students who are putting aside or procrastinating with the actual classes that they're supposed to be in, which if they were on campus, they would just be showing up, right? They would be absorbing new information and learning in that way. So that's been deferred too for some students. So yeah, it's not surprising to me that there are some students who are feeling way behind and don't know how to catch up. And, and I think it's important for us to be thinking about as a, you know, as an academic enterprise, like how we can support them through that, you know, while still maintaining academic standards, right? And then there's the loss to
3: all of the physical spaces. Kids who play a sport or go to the, the practice rooms where the pianos are, or right. it's all of those things outside of the classroom. As, a, as teachers, we think of it's all about the classroom in a lot right, of ways. Right. That's the center of things. Yeah. But for a lot of students, that's not the case, right? It's, exactly right. It's nested in this
2: larger environment. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's why we have college campuses, right? There's supposed to be physical spaces that are conducive to learning and growth, and that's been taken away from them. But we're still expecting them to learn and grow in the same way when all of these resources and you know, factors that were historically contributing to the learning are no longer there. Right. And not, and not only that, that, some of them may not be returning to like a neutral space where they can just figure all this stuff out. You know, we have students who are going to home environments that might be quite triggering for them and might not be very healthy for them. Thankfully, you know, most students are going home to environments that are conducive to their mental health and well being, but that's not the case for all students.
1: I had a very touching email exchange with a student about whom I'm worried. -hmm. And he's doing okay, but he's having a harder time than some. He'd missed a class, and I wrote and
2: said, I'm just checking in, are you okay? He said, It's hard. I would hope that, especially now, all faculty and instructors would be more inclined to be curious and inquisitive, you know, without being intrusive. It sounds like you were just concerned and you reached out, let him know what your concerns were, and gave him an opportunity to articulate and to, you know, express some of those concerns without him having to go into depth or detail, um, which sounds like he appreciated and it was helpful. I think the implicit communication there on your part, Anne, is that you're demonstrating care. You're validating whatever it is he might be going through emotionally, which goes a long way and makes a huge difference. We still have some students who are in disbelief. They're still shocked by all this, even though it's been a few weeks already. Their sense is this is not really happening. They're trying to sort of negotiate with their family members and with their instructors to get out of this mode of operating. So they haven't really accepted it yet. And so I think our jobs, gradually with any grief process to move folks to a place of acceptance so that they can develop the resiliencies and start planning for the future and pivot as necessary to to adjust to whatever the losses are. I think students really need that right now. And that also falls, I think, in line with something that I know you all hear me say all the time is that students need to be compassionate with themselves right now, especially now considering the circumstances, really being gentler and more loving to themselves. And in that same spirit, really being flexible with what their own expectations are for what's doable. Because sometimes, you know, when we recognize that a student really can't be a student right now because of their life situation, whatever that might be, I think it's important and kind really to let the student know, um, and maybe it's not the instructor, maybe it's the student's academic advisor or the academic, academic dean, to let the, let the student know that we, we, this is not the best time for you to be a student. It might be optimal for you to take a, a temporary leave and to come back when you're in a better place. I think that's really kind, actually. And I think sometimes students think about their academic trajectory in a very linear way, right? And that if they take a leave, it means this, that, or the other, when it really doesn't have to mean that. What it really means is that they're taking the time off to care for themselves or a loved one or to resolve whatever their situation is so that when they come back, they're able to be more successful academically.
3: I'm getting a lot of that. And I imagine you and Ann are as well. Around this tension between maintaining academic standards, perhaps, but really wanting to be compassionate. How do I know when I'm not being helpful? When I really need to say to a student, you need more advising than I can give you in this situation?
2: You know, I I don't have a a cookie cutter formulaic answer to that, obviously. Um, I mean, I think it really would depend on each student's situation and one, what that relationship might be like with the instructor. But certainly, I think there could be times where we feel like what the student is sharing with us really falls outside the scope of what we're able to do. And, you know, that threshold is going to look differently, I think, for each each faculty member outside of some pretty obvious things, I think. But, but aside from those situations, it's, it's helpful probably to be honest and self-aware of what you can do yourself as an instructor, and then to to make the appropriate referral when it feels like what you're being called upon to do falls outside the scope of that. And again, I don't know what that range is. I imagine it would vary from instructor to instructor. And again, it might not be the instructor's call to formally make the referral or formally make the recommendation to take a leave. It might have to be bounced to somebody in our office or an academic dean or an academic advisor.
1: When I was at a different university, the director of counseling services told us something very similar that really helped Uh, me, which is, you know, when someone asks you for advice and you feel like you're being asked to advise them on something outside your expertise. Mm -hmm. Just say that, Mm -hmm. and then tell them who's the person you know
2: that
1: might know that information. Right. And I think, you know, I don't have any hesitation when someone asks me, you know, I'm really struggling about, should I take organic chemistry first, or
2: -hmm. should I
1: take biology? Right. As an English professor, I don't have any hesitation to say, can't answer that question. Right. I don't know. But when someone says to me something about, you know, feeling sad and I don't have the ability to decide clinically, is is this depression? Is this a bad mood? Mm -hmm. It's harder to say, I actually don't know.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think if it's something general like sadness or anxiety, if students are sharing this with you, obviously it's important to be kind and compassionate and validating. But if you're not certain what degree it's shifting into and how intense it might be and and, you know whether or not it might require some sort of professional help then making the, the referral i think is is the best thing to do
1: as you've been working with your staff in this transition to fully online counseling for our students what resources have you found that have been most helpful or inspiring or useful for you
2: staying in contact with my professional organization has been incredibly helpful from multiple perspectives one just knowing that i and we are not in this alone that we're all struggling with this transition but then also tips and pointers about what works and what doesn't work you know what are the resources that are out there one of the things that we had to figure out how to do is access our record keeping system remotely and you you would think that's an easy thing to do but it wasn't there were a lot of technical difficulties because the medical record keeping systems are secure and protect it in a certain way. And it's not as if we can just use, you know, the remote desktop to access it. So just getting tips and pointers about how to navigate some of those things from folks who are on the ground doing it has been extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, and again, just this sense of universality, you know, knowing that we're not alone, that we're you know, struggling with this together is important.
3: So I'm wondering if you've, Jeff, thought about, now that counselors and students over five, six weeks, hopefully not months, become used to receiving counseling services in this way, via Zoom, uh-huh. will that change the culture of your work, of that relationship, making this kind of counseling more accepted and prevalent? I think if that's the case, the, the effects would might be.
2: We've been bouncing that around quite a bit on our team and in our team meetings. I mean, I think you know, one of the positive effects is that all of us will become more skillful Right. And have more competencies in providing services in this way, in the event that we, we need to do it or imperative that we provide it in that way for some students. That being said, the general consensus from students is they don't prefer doing it this way. They would still prefer to meet in person primarily. With the occasional exceptions, we have some students who were not higher risk, who when we've offered to continue seeing them in this modality, they declined, saying that they just preferred to not do so. And it wasn't necessarily because there were any like physical barriers at home that prevented them from doing so. It's just that they didn't want to meet this way. I think there's still tremendous value to having in-person face-to-face contact. I think there's a there's a level of limbic resonance and synchronicity that is missing when we're meeting through the screen. Again, I don't think we've evolved to not need that yet for our well-being. I think our students feel that.
1: I saw on Instagram, one of my former students posted a Lincoln Center bingo card. one of the squares that I loved was that hall where all the drama kids always are. You think about all the different events. I mean, it's not just the canceled events, but it's being an environment that feels kind of buzzing with things that you know you're probably not going to go to, but sound cool.
2: It is stimulating, and and that's been stripped away for for a lot of students right now. I mean, I think we have to remember the the spirit of why we created college campuses. It was to create environments that facilitate learning, physical and social environments that are conducive to learning. And that's all been taken away from students right now. And I think for us to expect that they can all continue to learn in the same way without all of those supports in place and those cues, as you mentioned, Anne, I think it's unrealistic. The last day where they sent
3: students home from Rose Hill, you need to go today. And a thousand students just hung out on, on Eddie's for hours and hours, just in each other's presence. Is there going to be commencement? My buddies I wanted to connect with is all of these things. I was in this play, we we're going to make that performance or and all of that stuff that just sort of vanished. And then In the rush to try to continue the teaching and learning, which is really vital in the absence of those other things that are just, for me personally,
2: are the things that got me through. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Those things are so meaningful for our students. Um, All of these things that you're describing as occurring outside of the classroom, so vital to to their experience and their their life as a college student. I mean, we have students who, as you said, were saying goodbye to, to friends, significant others, not really knowing when and if they'll see each other again. That's really difficult.
1: Right. Um, you right.
2: know, we have students who are extraordinarily close to one another, not knowing when they'll see each other again. Seniors who are graduating, who were anticipating having a couple of more months right, to spend with friends and significant others and roommates and sweetmates, who now don't know if they'll be able to sort of recapture that experience. I think the other thing that's extraordinarily difficult for our students, and, you know, they they've not, for the most part, generationally been through some of this stuff, is not knowing when this will end, this sort of uncertainty about when things will return to a sense of normalcy. I think that the not knowing and the uncertainty just compounds their their struggles right now.
3: Studying from my chemistry test is this commitment to the future. Right. In the future, uh, this is going to be good for me that I did this. Uh-huh. But knowing that the future is so uncertain, all the other factors that you've been describing, this commitment to the, this future version of myself, right, that's mm-hmm. somehow better, But in a state of such uncertainty, I don't know if that future is going to happen in the way that I had hoped. So now what? And there's no one in my life that can tell me what this is going to be.
2: No, exactly. I couldn't agree more, Steve. I think that's something that definitely is resonating with a lot of our students right now. And, you know, and and I do trust that with time and um, evolving and emerging resiliency, that they will grow from this. But right now, it's really difficult for them. But they, they will, you know... The, the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, they don't want to hear that right now. But I, I do believe that with you know, adversity and calamity such as this, that it is an opportunity for growth and development of resiliency skills. And, and they'll, they'll get there. But right now, they're not there yet. They're still processing all the losses right. and figuring out how to live at home.
1: One of the things that we have been wanting to ask all of our guests is to tell us a little bit about a teacher really mattered to you and how they continue to kind of inspire you. So do you have any teachers in your life that you think back on or that are particularly emerging as helpful to you in this moment?
2: I went to Rutgers for my, my doctorate and there was a, uh, an instructor there named uh, Nancy Boyd Franklin whose uh, academic and research interests were on the intersections of diversity and mental health. And what I loved about her is that it wasn't simply like theoretical or pedagogical for her. She really invested um, in, in her students, especially her students of color, and translated everything that she was teaching and researching into her day-to-day interactions with students. She cared deeply for, for me and, and, and for the other students that she worked with, and really demonstrated that each and every day. And it, you know, went a long way for me personally to know that there was someone in the academy who genuinely cared and was looking out for me. And I felt emotionally safe with her and felt comfortable enough to share with, with her, you know, my struggles and challenges. And she knew. So when it was appropriate to make a referral and not, not because she couldn't provide the care. I mean, she was a psychologist. She could have. But she also recognized that wasn't her role. Right. right. I felt outside the boundaries of her role because she was she was a faculty member, not not a clinician. Um, at the institution that we were at. So that's one of the folks that come to mind right away.
1: That's great. Thank you.
2: One of the mantras in the world of psychotherapy is that that we validate before we challenge. So we want to validate emotional experience before we confront it or, or address it. People can't change unless they feel seen or heard.
3: Jeff, thanks so much. This is really wonderful. Thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom.
2: No, thank you guys for all you're doing.
1: Jeff, it's really great to talk to you. We'll uh, take care of yourself and your family. Stay well, and thanks for everything.
0: Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOverOne or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. On behalf of Anne and myself, thanks so much for listening.